Good morning. Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Michael, thank you so much for reading our lesson this morning and grace and peace to all of you. Uh, It's wonderful to see you in worship today on a beautiful pre-spring day. And those of you who are online with us, what a joy it is to be with you in your home or wherever you are to share the word of God with each of you. It is uh, a distinct joy to be with you all. Uh, As we begin this season called Lent, um, we started here uh, on Wednesday night. We began this season called Lent. The word Lent comes from the old English word that means to lengthen, and it reminds us of how the days closer to spring begin to lengthen. The night, the darkness is beginning to fade, and the daylight more so. And remember, uh, it's a week from today, actually, that time change happens next week, and we'll have more daylight in the evening, and don't forget your clocks uh, next week as well. So we began here on Wednesday night with Ash Wednesday with the imposition of ashes. And that's a traditional way, a traditional symbol of our mortality, of our frailty, and of our need to repent, to begin again with God, to renew our hearts and our devotion. And as always, we applied the ashes on our forehead in the shape of a cross as a sign of our desire and our intention to walk with Jesus during these 40 days of prayer and fasting. Our theme, as we begin for the next six weeks, is called Walk This Way, and it reminds us that as disciples, as Christ followers, that we're moving as we follow Jesus in a definitive direction. I remember how Luke 9, 51 says that Jesus steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he knew exactly where the road was going. 
And so as we begin this pilgrimage, it's a definitive direction. It is not an easy path. In fact, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you remember there's a section in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few will find it. It's a way of Jesus saying to us that the trail of discipleship that we're on is not the path of least resistance. It is a long and winding road. Oftentimes, it's an uphill battle that includes self-denial. Whoever comes after me, Jesus said, must deny himself, pick up her cross, and follow me. This is a trajectory during these 40 days that includes sacrifice and shared suffering. It is indeed the road less traveled. Michael, it's interesting in the text that you read, and you'll find this story, the temptation of Jesus, both in Matthew and in Luke. But in Luke's portrayal, Jesus has just come from the Jordan. Uh, Doug and some others of us will be uh, leaving Tuesday, and we'll be at the Jordan River in about a week or so, and we'll participate in our own reaffirmation of our baptismal vows. It's a beautiful experience there at that beautiful place in Israel. Jesus just coming from the Jordan where he'd been baptized by cousin John there on the riverbank. You remember the heavens opened, the dove descended, and the voice of God, the voice of the Father spoke, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. It was an epiphany. In the water, as still is true today in our baptism, our identity is confirmed in the water Our vocation is sanctioned in the water, and then comes trouble. The path from Jordan, the path of discipleship, is never trouble-free. It is more often troublesome. It leads directly into the wilderness. And I think this is a universal principle, that wilderness always follows the water. In other words, temptation follows confirmation. After baptism by water comes baptism by fire. It was true for the Hebrew children. After their exodus, after God delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea, what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It took three days to get them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. It's a process called sanctification. And oh, by the way, The number 40, whenever you see that in the scripture, the number 40 is indicative of a season of testing. So when Moses went to Sinai, how long was he there? 40 days. When Elijah, the prophet, fled to the desert, how long? 40 days. When Goliath, the giant, talked smack to the armies of Israel, how long? 40 days before finally the teenage David with his slingshot prepared for battle. I guess... I guess then what Walter Pitkin said was right, that life really does begin at 40. Some of you may say amen to that, others not so much. Perhaps life begins at 40, but so does fallen arches and faulty eyesight and the tendency to tell the same story to the same person three times. In fact, where, where was I? Um, wilderness, 
follows water. There's a wonderful book I recommend to you. Gil Rendell wrote this book. It's called Quietly Courageous, where he describes our cultural context today as wilderness. This is what he says. The wilderness is disorienting and deeply unfamiliar territory that assuredly makes it a favored place for God to change the heart, mind, and purpose of chosen people. In the wilderness, listen to this, leaders must lead with courage without being sure where they are going. Or as Laura Brantley said in her sermon on Sunday, we don't always have a map, but we do have a guide. Now let me pause it there just a moment and confess something to you. Some of you already know this, that I'm directionally challenged. I won't ask for a show of hands, but maybe you are too. And if you are, it's okay. I think it's a sign of brilliance. Of course, my wife disagrees, but she's been wrong once before. Anyway, it's an issue. And so consequently, when we go on vacation, if we're going anywhere out of town, typically she will drive because there's less conversation when she drives. And so it's difficult because because of my challenge, I've done more than my share of wandering in my life. Uh, Like most men here, I was raised to believe that to ask for directions is a sign of, of weakness. But my wife has helped me to understand that when I'm driving, if my inclination is to turn right, I should go left and I'll get us there and vice versa. But I've also discovered, and this is metaphorically too speaking, I've also discovered that sometimes when you lose your way, you may actually find yourself. I think of the prodigal who lost his way, but in a far country remembered who he was. He remembered his father. Wilderness follows water. Marlena Graves has written a book called A Beautiful Disaster, where she uses the same imagery, the wilderness, she said, listen to this, the wilderness has a way of curing our illusions about ourselves and teaching us to depend more and more solely on God. She writes, when we first enter wilderness, we're convinced that we have entered the bowels of hell. But on the pathway, we discover that the desert drips with the divine The desert land is fertile soil for transformation and renewal. Wilderness follows water. Valleys follow mountains. And so it was with Jesus. It is important to note in Luke's text that though Jesus went into the wilderness by himself, he was not alone Listen again to the text. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Who's in charge? Satan? No. The Spirit. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit filled Jesus even in the wilderness because wilderness always follows water. Now, sometimes I've noticed that we in the clergy, in particular, we in the church, act as if 
life is all up to us, like the world and the church is on our shoulders. And I've discovered sometimes, even in clergy, that there's a functional atheism that sometimes pops up in the church, though we have the confession, we don't have the conduct, as if we are limited to our own strength and resources. Reminds me of Acts 19. You remember when Paul went to check on the church in Ephesus and he noticed that something was off. They, he sensed that something was missing in their spiritual lives and so he asked them an interesting question. He said, when you all were baptized, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, the Holy who? They'd never heard of the Spirit. And Paul did more digging and found that they had been baptized in the name of John preparation, repentance, but they had never been baptized in the name of Jesus. I've been reading about our Catholic friends who, because of a certain priest who used the wrong pronoun in baptism, they kind of eradicated 20 years of those who had been baptized, and I think that's a mistake. Because the truth of the matter is our identity is not sewn up in the right pronoun that the clergy uses. It is summed up in the identity that we are sons and daughters of Jesus. Our identity is in the water. The Holy Spirit is the indwelling power and presence of the risen Christ inside of you, inside of me, so that we are equipped and enabled, listen, to do the same kinds of things that Jesus did while he walked the earth. In fact, John 14, 12 says, greater things than these you will do because of my spirit that is in you. When I was growing up as a boy in McKendry Church, downtown Nashville, I can remember some folks sometimes would say, well, the the problem with the church is that we're so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good. But today I think it's more often the reverse of that, that we become so earthly minded that I'm not much spiritual good. And I'm aware in the reading of this text in the life of Jesus that if the body of Christ is to be faithful, if if we as a, a witnessing community are to be sustained and to thrive, then it's not just about the external, it's about the internal. That the spirit in us begins to develop those internal resources like prayer and fasting and scripture reading and alms, which are a means of grace. In this text, Michael, Jesus was well equipped for the wilderness. I want you to notice in the text that Jesus responds to each test, how? With scripture. Ephesians 6 verse 17 that that enumerates and takes inventory of spiritual armor says the scripture is the sword of the spirit. But before we go there, I want you to notice that each temptation of Satan is presented not as an opportunity to fail, but as an opportunity to succeed, to rise. This is generally true of our testing too, that all temptation is about the use of power. All testing is about the misuse sometimes of power. For example, when Satan says, turn this stone into bread, 
what is he saying? He's saying to Jesus, feed your face. Feed your appetite. Break your fast. Have breakfast, is what he's saying. And that's personal power. And then Satan says, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of these earthly empires, kingdoms. That's about political muscle. And then he says, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Go up to the steeple, jump off. That's a pious, that's a religious spectacle. And so the devil's schemes are always the same, to use our God-given gifts as a power grab to build up myself, to contribute to my own agenda, to my own party, my own cause, my own benefit, and it's the same old, same old, same old. In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent never said to the honeymooners, hey, you want to become a snake like me? Anybody could have survived that. But when the serpent says, you want to be God for yourself? You want to take the place of God? All of a sudden, Adam and Eve are sitting ducks. To every test, Jesus responds with Scripture. He knows the Torah. He doesn't have to go find a scroll and look it up. He knows the Scripture, and he responds. It is written, whenever you see that, that takes you back to the Old Testament. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. That's Deuteronomy 8, 3, and Deuteronomy 6, 13. He knows the word. As disciples, and we are all disciples, in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe in the primacy of Scripture. In fact, it's one of our core values. Some of you know the name Dr. Albert Outler, who taught at SMU forever, for 40 years. I had the privilege of completing my doctoral degree at SMU. Dr. Outler said of Mr. Wesley these words, the Bible was his first court of appeals in faith and morals. Scripture was the primary governing source of his theology and the ultimate criterion by which it and all theologies are to be tested. But it was the third test in the wilderness that is tricky. Now listen. In the last temptation, Satan also quotes Scripture. I mean, don't look now, but apparently the devil went to seminary. Got his master of divinity, probably from Vanderbilt, of course. Went to vacation Bible school when he was a little devil. Probably won the Bible drill, perfect attendance, pen, and all of that. In the final test, he took Jesus to the steeple of the temple and said, if you are God's son, you see the, well, he had just heard you are, and now it's if you are, jump. For it is written, Satan quotes scripture. God will command the angels to protect you. They will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. That's Psalm 91. And Satan has been to Bible study. It was Shakespeare who said, there is no error so gross, but that some sober brow will bless it with a proper text. And for a minute, it looks like checkmate 
in the wilderness. But watch what Jesus does. He quotes scripture against scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. What is Jesus doing? He's demonstrating the importance of interpretation, of exegesis, of explaining the text. You not only need to know the text, you need to know the context. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And a proof text is when I have a point and I look for a text to prove my own point. And that's exactly what Satan does. In addition, I think it's also important to know the motive of the one who is reciting the text and the situation to which it is being applied. Because I don't have to tell you, I'm preaching to the choir today, that you can use this book, you can use the Bible either as a pickaxe or a scalpel. You can use it to put somebody in their place or you can use it to make a place for somebody. And I'll tell you what got Jesus in trouble in his ministry. What got him in trouble with the Pharisees and the synagogue folk is he was always saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's a reinterpretation of law, a reinterpretation of Torah, of Scripture, in ways that get at the root of the text rather than just the letter of the law. And they nailed him for it. And I'll tell you what's made the difference for me in my wilderness. It's not just that Jesus knows the word. It's that Jesus is the word. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the exegesis, the interpretation of God the Father. He doesn't just recite it. He personifies it. He embodies it. And that's our task, too. It's not enough to commit Scripture to memory. You have to commit it to heart, to hands, to feet. You have to personify it, even in the wilderness, even in Gethsemane, even at Calvary. Not by seizing power for ourselves, but by emptying ourselves and walking his way. Last word. We talk a lot these days, uh, particularly in our staff, but also in our lay leadership, we talk a lot about core values as Christ followers. And we worked on this for several years, trying to, trying to figure out the clarity of who we are as a church. We have five core values. I have a slide with all of those core values on them. You know these, I hope you do. Christ-centered ministry of all believers, and so on and so forth. These are our core values as disciples at Brentwood Church. I had a friend ask me recently, Davis, if you had to give up all your core values except for one, what would you hold on to? And I gotta tell you, I didn't have an instant answer for that. I mean, that's a hard, hard question because there are probably 
50 core values that we could name here. We've boiled it down to five and he wants one. It's a hard question. And after I thought for a moment, I said, I I think it would be number five, although I've always struggled a little bit with the paradox. It seems like a paradox to have the centrality of grace with the primacy of scripture. Because to me, scripture is a standard and grace is unconditional. But after nearly 40 years of wilderness training, I've come to the conclusion that it is no paradox at all because the centrality of grace is the primacy of scripture. That is the crux the core. From Genesis to Revelation, the thesis of God, it's grace which is supremely embodied in the living word of God who is Christ our Lord and Redeemer. Somebody's in the wilderness this morning. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your valley is. But somebody's in the wilderness. And I want to remind you today that that is normal trajectory for disciples. Wilderness follows water. You cannot bypass it. Temptation follows confirmation. But you're not alone. Even if you've come by yourself today, you are not alone You never have been, and you never will be. And God has made accessible his artillery, his armor, so that we can go the distance through word and spirit. So that even in those moments where you felt as though you've lost your way, you'll find yourself in the grace of him who is your guide and your map. Because after all, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, it's time to walk his way. In Jesus' name, amen.